Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm extremely excited for today's episode with Haben Gurma. Haben is one of the more extraordinary humans I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. She is the first deafblind graduate of Harvard Law School and is a tireless advocate for disability rights. And really, I think just a stand for phenomenal humanity and not letting perceived limitations be an obstacle to pursuing the life of your dreams. Uh, Haven is a surfer. We actually talk about uh, surfing as we started off our conversation. And it was fascinating to me because we actually, this is one of my first remote interviews. And to use technology, which she's an advocate for as it relates to um, disability rights, to communicate with someone um, with, with Haven's condition such that she was able to, one of the things I just was so blown away by was her, her visual acuity, her lack of not only limitation, but I would say almost textured layering of the way that she perceives and communicates a beautiful storyteller actually. And it was uh, such a profound conversation for me for a variety of reasons. Now, there are some pauses between questions and answers, um, which is natural, uh, given the fact that we were using technology. She has a, an incredible device that enables her to um, get audio, and then it, it, it sort of enables her, to, her, to, her to respond in kind. But obviously, there's a bit of a lag in the translation. So um, do be a bit patient because I think you'll find the conversation is extraordinarily worthwhile and I'm just really in awe and admiration for Haven and who she is, her stand in the world, her incredible creativity, and just her humanity. So I think you're going to really love this conversation. This episode is brought to you by Thrive Probiotic. Thrive is my go-to probiotic. Uh, I take it on a daily basis. I also take their prebiotic. Um, I just watched a movie last night actually produced by Rosario Dawson about how essential our soil is to our planetary health. And I would say the same is true of the gut to our health. Uh, the, the microbiome is like the, 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 the fertility of the soil as it relates to um, production and to plants flourishing and so too is the gut to uh, human health and to our own flourishing and the diversity of the bacterium in our gut has roles in our emotional health in our in our happiness you know our serotonin is produced in our gut and in our overall immunity so I highly recommend you check out uh, Thrive Probiotic they're clinically proven and I absolutely love them um, you can check them out at justthrivehealth.com and if you put in peak mind at checkout you will get a nice discount on your order uh, again you'll see that in your show notes but it's just thrive health and uh, com and put in peak at checkout for discount this episode's also brought to you by foria foriawellness.com foria is my go-to brand for really high integrity cbd which is good for your cannabinoid system has you know really profound effects for me in terms of uh, reducing anxiety, just an overall state of wellness and well-being. Um, you know, I use it as part of my overall wellness regimen. Um, I find you know there's tremendous research on CBD. It's all over the place. What I like about Foria is. I know that their product has integrity. Uh, they are third-party tested. Uh, it's grown here in America, you know, because um, hemp can take in toxins from the soil. Again, uh, the quality of of where it's grown is super important to the integrity of the CBD. So I love their basics. Check them out at foryourwellness.com backslash basics, and you'll get a nice twenty percent discount on your order when you put Peak in at checkout. And with that, it is my great pleasure to introduce the one and only Haven Girl. I am in Los Angeles, and you're in San Francisco, yes? That's right. And later this afternoon, you have an in-person interview with someone from Hamilton? Uh, not the cast of Hamilton, but Laird Hamilton. You're a, you're a surfer, Yes. Oh, so someone, sorry, 
for the confusion. Yeah, <laughs> so Lisa Hamilton. And yes, I'm a surfer. So the gentleman I'm interviewing a little bit later today is Laird Hamilton, who some many consider to be the best big wave surfer of all time. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. You, you've seen his videos, right? Yeah, I just have been doing – while well, I was researching you – so today, I'm, uh, today's a wonderful day for me because today I get the pleasure of interviewing three legends, yourself, then Gabby, Gabby Reese, who's Laird Hamilton's wife, who's an amazing mother, pro volleyball player, um, etc., and, and Laird Hamilton, who, as, as you said, yes, I have watched his videos, uh, surf, has surfed some of the most uh, powerful waves on the planet. That is incredible. I love surfing because partly it's a metaphor for life. The ocean is very unpredictable. It's a powerful force. And I love the challenge of trying to balance on this board, on the powerful ocean. You can feel the board vibrating as you're riding the wave. So you, you immediately feel the ocean and it's really connected and I, I love experiencing that yeah you said it beautifully uh, I agree I think surfing is one of the most powerful metaphors for life I'll be honest I'm not very good but I'd like to go out and and experience the power of the ocean it's it's been one of my great teachers I actually live on the ocean what are other ways you experience the power of the ocean Swimming. I love to swim. I've been swimming my whole life. My dad, when I was a little boy, uh, would take me in the pool. So when I, like, when I was an infant, just born, they, they would he socialized me to the water, and he would take me. He would say, "I'm I'm like a whale," and he would put me. And I remember grabbing onto his uh, shoulders. He's a big guy like me. I'm about six foot four. And he would swim through the water, underwater. And it's one of my earliest and fondest memories. And so for me, the ocean is, um, is, is one of the places that I feel most connected to nature. And for me, nature is like church. And so the ocean is, is, is a place in which I get very clear. And oftentimes I feel reborn. Like when I go in the ocean and I come out, I feel like a new person. I like the imagery of you hanging on to the shoulder of a whale and trying to go as deep as you can in the pool. Yeah. Yeah, it's powerful. I actually, I'll send you a link. I just watched a film, which I'll, I'll link to the notes after this b below, but of a really powerful story that I think you'll love. Um, I watched two days ago. It's about a man who lives in Patagonia at a lighthouse and a woman who brings her son, who ha is a high-spectrum um, autistic, and the degree to which he can com communicate with the orcas, the whales, is, is next level because his sensitivity to sound is so acute. And the, the therapeutic benefit is profound. And I know as an advocate for disability rights, I think that it would be, and, and someone who's passionate about the ocean, I think it's something you would really love. I love to read that story. It reminds me of Temple Grandon and how she, she, I wouldn't say communicates with animals, but she is an animal science professor and expert. And she is able to use her visual awareness to see things from the animal's perspective. And by seeing things from the animal's perspectives, she can identify potential stressors and advise people to rearrange uh, building structures within a farm to make it more comfortable for the animals. Wow, that's incredible. What's her name? Temple Grandin. Okay, I'll have to link to her below as well in the, in the show notes. 
I really want to check out her work. I've been working at a place, I've been supporting a place called The Wolf Connection, which I know you have an amazing guide dog named Maxine. I'd love next time you're in L.A. to invite you. It's called The Wolf Connection. And they've rescued 25 wolves, and they bring uh, youth from throughout Los Angeles, especially uh, youth who've had particular challenges, um, and they bring them together with the wolves. And there's a huge therapeutic protocol, and it's, it's one of the most special places I've ever been. I think you would love it. Do they, how close do they get to the wolves? Do they touch the wolves or do, are they behind uh, Benson? Yes, you can touch the wolves. So uh, Teo, the founder, has created a whole protocol. So he's from Argentina and he's uh, almost like a wolf whisperer. And so he's socialized the pack so that you can interact with the wolves. And the wolves... He talks about the history of wolves because wolves have, have grown with humans over time in such a way that we have a very powerful relationship. And so he talks about the fact that the wolves can bring us back to ourselves. So he, he has uh, now he doesn't force interaction. But what's amazing is that the wolves, kind of like what you were saying earlier, they can sense where a human is in terms of their energy and their emotions. And so they'll interact differently with different, uh, different humans and especially with youth. So they, they kind of interact in very special ways. Sometimes they'll connect with you. Sometimes they won't. But it's all based on the energy you're bringing. So you can't, uh, you can't fake it. It's based on who you are and how you're showing up. That's incredible. Um, Maxine, some people think Maxine looks like a wolf. She does look like a wolf. I remember when I met you at Wonderlust, she, she, she looks like a wolf. She's, she's a German shepherd, yes? Yeah, that's right. She's a German shepherd. Yeah, it's amazing. How, how, how has Maxine, how does your connection with Maxine help you navigate the world? Maxine was trained at the Seeing Eye. It's a guide dog school in New Jersey. And there are about 13 different guide dog schools around the country. They all train the dogs slightly differently. So I did research beforehand, and I studied the differences between the guide dog schools. And I picked the one that best matched what I was looking for. The most training and lots of German Shepherds. I really wanted a German Shepherd. So, um, I'm, I'm going to pause one moment and, and come right back. I need okay, to go to researched all the different guide dog schools in the United States and I picked the one that I liked best and I was looking for training how much out how much training does a dog receive I was also looking at the different breeds that are trained a lot of schools don't do German Shepherds and I really wanted a German Shepherd because they look smart with their pointy ears Labs with floppy ears don't look as smart. <laughs> I I understand. See? 
Labs are the most popular germ. Uh, sorry, labs are the most popular guide dogs because they're very easy to train. When dogs are smarter, they have more attitude. They insist on making more decisions. So it's a little harder to train German Shepherds, but it definitely can be done. So fewer schools do German Shepherds. The seeing eye in New Jersey does German Shepherds. So I flew all the way to the seeing eye to get a German Shepherd guide dog. And she's trained to move around obstacles. So if we're walking down a sidewalk and there's a garbage can in the middle of the sidewalk, she will move around the sidewalk so that I don't crash into the sidewalk. She will stop at the end of the sidewalk when we get to the corner. If there's a car coming, she will stop. If I tell her go forward and there's a car coming, she won't go forward. It's wow. called intelligent disobedience. <laughs> wow. They're not machines. They're trained to think for themselves. And if their owner says go forward and there's some kind of barrier, the dog will disobey. So you want personality. You want the dog to make decisions for, your, for themselves. But you also want the dog to respect and want to please the owner. So it's a really fascinating relationship of, of respect, making decisions for themselves. It's, it's really fun. I love having a guide dog. That sounds like one of the more powerful relationships one can have, uh, period, whether with human or, or with animal. What, what's it like to trust? How, what, what's, how, how I imagine you trust Maxine completely. What's it like to, to be in that type of a relationship with, with an animal where you trust them so completely? It's complicated. <laughs> As all great relationships are, yes. Exactly, exactly. So I don't trust her completely mm. because she's a dog. She's highly, highly trained, but she's still a dog. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when we're walking down the sidewalk, she will, her body will tense up and it'll turn in a certain direction. And to me, that usually means there's some kind of animal distraction, mm. a squirrel, another dog. And even though her body's saying, let's go left, I know we're going to ignore that. I'm not going to trust that signal. So I, I learned to listen to her and ignore her or, or override some of her claims. Similarly, she does the same thing to me. She listens to me, but sometimes she uses intelligent disobedience. Fascinating. So you're in a dynamic communication an exchange with Maxine. Yeah, she offers an idea. Hmm. I listen. Sometimes I agree and follow through. Sometimes I disagree. She's very, very smart. And sometimes she makes good decisions that I like. Other times she, make, she wants to make decisions that I disagree with. And I have to say, no, we're not going to chase the squirrel. <laughs> yes. Well, I, uh, I can imagine that it's a nuanced relationship and a powerful one. Um, you mentioned something earlier I'd like to touch on because I've been, I've been watching all of your interviews. And, and there's something you, you are uh, obviously a, 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 a huge advocate for disability rights. Um, and, but one of the things that you talked about is the notion of obstacles and whether you have a quote unquote disability or not, we all face obstacles. How do you see, uh, obstacles? 
I have a disability and I'm comfortable with the word disability. Some people use other words like differently abled, special needs. I don't like using those words. I like being real, describing things the way they are. Also, the word disability is tied to civil rights. It's right. called Americans with Disabilities Act, not Americans with Different Abilities Act or Americans with Special Needs Act. So disability has a lot of positive connotations to me. There are some negative associations as well. And instead of carrying the shame of those negative associations, I try to use my own story to remove and override those negative associations. So I'm actively changing what it means to be disabled. And as a deaf-blind woman, living in a world designed for people who can see and hear, I face tons of obstacles. Mm. And I choose whether to treat those obstacles as permanent and unmovable or as opportunities to create new solutions. So you choose to see, if I'm understanding, choose to see obstacles as opportunities for new solutions. Most of the time, yeah. <laughs> Keep it real. Keep it real. I like that. Yes, most of the time. Uh, beautiful. Let's touch. I, I, I'd like to. You, you mentioned your story. I'd love it if you share a little bit. If we could go back into your into your personal history, which I've researched. Um, you you your heritage is Eritrean and Ethiopian. Is that correct? My family, my parents, mother and father are from Eritrea and Ethiopia. My mother grew up in Eritrea. My dad grew up in Ethiopia. And you have a brother? I have three siblings. I have a younger sister and two older brothers. And one of my brothers is also deafblind. Is he older than you? That's right. Yeah, one of my brothers is older than me. He was raised uh, in in uh, in Eritrea or Ethiopia before coming to the U.S. Is that right? That's right. My older brother was raised in Eritrea. How do you see in your experience um, the views of disability differing? and this is a big question, but differing in terms of other countries versus the U.S. And, as, and furthermore, as you advocate for rights around the world, what are some of the key points of view or key ways in which uh, you approach the challenges so as to uh, make the lives of those living with disabilities um, better all around the world in the united states in eritrea and ethiopia there are people who are afraid of differences and disability is a form of difference and some people choose to just completely avoid the difference they stay away from people with disabilities or if they are around someone with a disability, they will ignore them, ignore the disability, treat it as taboo. I try to teach people that difference is an asset. We should celebrate the way we're different. We also have a lot of similarities. Rather than hiding our differences, we should embrace them and see them as unique things we contribute to our communities. Especially in the workforce, differences drive innovation. It's a unique perspective you bring to the table. The more unique perspectives there are at a table, the more ways you're going to develop to tackle a problem and create a solution. So it benefits communities to have this diversity. 
and I treat disability as an asset, as something unique to bring to the table that's going to help shape the future. I love that. How how have you seen in your work with with different companies or different? I mean, I've seen you obviously honored by Prime Minister Trudeau in Canada and President Obama and President Clinton. Uh, and I know you've worked with a, l- a large number of different companies. How have you seen uh, how have you seen innovation spurred by those living with disability? I have a great talk that I did for the Apple Worldwide Developers Conference that highlights some of the some of the stories throughout our history where people have driven innovation. For example, one of the fathers of the internet, Vince Cerf, is deaf, hard of hearing, hearing impaired, and he worked on one of the earliest email protocols. Communicating through the telephone is difficult or impossible when you can't hear well over the telephone. So creating a new way for people to connect by sending messages instantly back and forth, electronic mail, that benefits people who are deaf and hard of hearing. It also benefits hearing people. Lots of hearing people use email. So this is an example where someone had a challenge and ends up building a solution that helps address that challenge. And that solution benefits the entire world. So when we build solutions based on disability, we end up developing the next big thing. I love it. I love, I love also that you focus on the narrative of seeing the opportunity and the innovation. Um, I, I talk about, so I, I know that people talk about compliance, right? That they have to do something to accommodate for those with disabilities. The way that you're reframing the narrative is one oriented towards the, the profound uh, strength that comes from diversity and also the opportunity that comes from the innovative thinking born of necessity. Is, this, is, uh, this is somewhat similar when I, when I work to build Global Citizen you know, there, we tried to change the narrative around those living with extreme poverty, right? At the time, there were 1.3 billion people around the world living in extreme poverty. And we said, let's not turn this into a thing around guilt and shame. There's a huge opportunity if we help to raise our brothers and sisters around the world living under $1.25 uh, a day, and think of all of the innovations, all of the ways in which all of our lives will be benefited if those people have the opportunity to create in the ways that we create. And I love, I love that you're totally reframing the narrative around those living with disabilities. How many people currently live with disabilities around the world? Around the world, there are about 1.3 billion people with disabilities. Wow, so very similar. Yeah, it's huge. And technology and money does help in finding some solutions. A lot of accessible technology is expensive, but money is not always the answer. You can develop many low-tech solutions. For example, I use a digital braille display and keyboard for communication. But if I didn't if I couldn't afford that, then I could use sign language with a lot of people. Or I could use print on palm where people draw letters on the palm and can feel what's being written. Mm. So there's a lot of low tech solutions. Amazing. Where are you seeing some of the most exponential uh, benefits, either in low-tech accessible solutions or high-tech innovations that you feel will have uh, profound impact on those living with disabilities? 
those people who are people with disabilities who don't have the resources to buy high-tech solutions or within government systems that won't provide the funding for those high-tech solutions, then they can turn to low-tech solutions. And the internet is a great way to share information about what these low-tech solutions are. For example, um, people can go into communities and teach sign language, or they can go into communities and teach people how to use a white cane to, to travel around a community. A lot of the world doesn't have access to guide dog training, so using a white cane is a cost-effective, simple, and very great way to navigate an environment non-visually. I use a white cane too. There are certain situations where it's easier for me to use a white cane than to use a guide dog. In order to get a guide dog in the United States, you have to first be confident and comfortable traveling with a white cane. So a white cane is a great tool that's low tech and affordable and can work anywhere in the world. Hmm. So it sounds like there's a there's a, an array of tools that 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 you use that help you navigate uh, most effectively and that those tools are, are also, you know, there's, there's sort of different levels of access, but wherein there's no access, there are still low tech tools that can, that can be encouraged to support those living with disabilities, such as uh, things like white canes, sign language training, etc. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I need to do as much as I can to provide access for myself. So I learn tools. In different situations work for different tools. For example, when I'm sitting down, I can use my braille display and computer. But when I'm walking around, it's harder to read from my computer while I'm walking around. And those can be situations to use sign language, to use print on palm. So there are lots of different situations where a certain solution won't work and you have to be flexible and try to use a different solution. Mm. So powerful. Now, you're known uh, for many things, but, but one is being the first deafblind graduate of Harvard Law School. Uh, and I know that you... you um, well, let me ask you this question first. How was it navigating? I mean, I, I've done graduate school as well, which was challenging in and of itself. How was uh, how was navigating the Harvard Law degree? Um, was it did, was it more challenging as a result of uh, of being deafblind, or was it what did it was it did it wind up being an asset in certain regards? I went to a law school that knew the Americans with Disabilities Act. <laughs> so because they understood the law, they knew they had a responsibility to ensure the law school was accessible to me. So I had my books in Braille. I had my exams in Braille. I had interpreters in class. I had access to the dance classes. I was part of the ballroom dance team my first semester in law school. I wanted to ensure that I had fun in addition to working hard. And I maintained a balance of studying and working hard and connecting with people and dancing. It's really, really important, even in law school, to make sure you feel alive, you're connecting with the world, connecting with people. And that was an important part of my law school experience. What did you do for grad school? I went to Columbia University, uh, not too far from you, and I studied uh, Tamil, the language. I actually lived in Sri Lanka for two years when I was um, in, in college, and then I went back on a Fulbright scholarship. So I went, and I speak Sinhala. And at the time, uh, Sri Lanka was in the middle of a civil war, 
and I wound up uh, one of the more uh, intense and informative experiences of my life was being uh, I was in uh, behind quote unquote enemy lines when the ceasefire ended, and so I I encountered both Sinhalese and Tamil uh, refugees and saw the consequences of war. And so it inspired me to learn a new language, uh, and which is interesting that we're talking because um, I actually was diagnosed when I was younger with a learning disability. So languages are very hard for me, not, not in the context of living in a place. So when I lived in Sri Lanka, learning Sinhala was actually not hard for me because I'm, a, I'm very visual and I learn well, uh, I lived with a family. So in interacting with my Nangis, my little sisters, I, I learned the language quite quickly. But at grad school, to study a language through books, book learning, was one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> it, was, it was very, very hard because Tamil's also a tonal language. So I had to learn to read, write, and speak uh, a language at 30 that I had never, I had been exposed to for only an hour or two, very, very little amount of time. So it was a very profound uh, challenge and one that I still relish to this day because it forced me to train different aspects of my brain. And then I wound up uh, going back to Sri Lanka and volunteering with an amazing NGO that works actually with, uh, uh, with people living in disabilities and also with villages around the country. Um, called some, they do something called the Sarvodaya Shramadana movement, which is basically encouraging people through self-reliance. So instead of waiting for the government to help them with various programs, they work with villages to raise themselves up. So they have a saying, we build the road and the road builds us. And so they'll do um, activities like build a well or build a road. And every person in the village, no matter how old, how sick, participates, whether that means they cook or they carry a rock or any. It's basically about seeing the value in each person and, and having each person feel a sense of um, contributing su- such that they feel a valuable member of the community. Because traditionally in Sri Lanka, the notion of privacy and the notion of possession don't exist in the same way that it exists for us linguistically. So you exist in relationship to the community. So if so, when the, what I studied on my Fulbright was community building. So if you fall out of balance, it's the role of the whole community to bring you back into balance, into wholeness with the community. So it's, it's a little bit of a longer answer, but uh, I, I went to graduate school to study uh, Tamil because I was interested deeply in the notion of community and creating community, especially where where community has been broken, like in the context of war or even in the context, I think, of our current society where people feel alone and disconnected from others. That's incredible that their language uh is relationship-based, and if one person feels disconnected and broken, the whole community is disconnected and broken. It's interesting to how language reflects and influences our communities, mm-hmm. and that knowledge can help you teach and rebuild uh, the community in Los Angeles and the United States. Yeah, I've been looking to apply the principles. I mean, it was such a transformative experience in my life that I've since then been working to apply those principles, right? How do you take the beauty and not to say not to overly romanticize, but how do you take the the incredible um, virtues and values that are imbued in a culture that values community to such a deep level? And how do you apply that in the context of a more Western culture and society, which is so oriented towards the individual and individual gain? And and that's what's celebrated. And not to make one better than the other, but I'm fascinated in how we as individuals can also work to build a new sense of community 
such that there's an inclusiveness, but also we can encourage individual innovation. So, so that's, that's the great question I feel like I'm living into uh, in life. Maybe start by sharing stories from Sri Lanka, their cultural legends and stories that, that teach inclusion. Yes, uh, you hit it on the head. Actually, that's what I studied. So I studied. I don't talk. I, I don't talk about this enough. But I studied two uh, rituals. One uh, which is called Saniyakuma, the other which is called Kolam Maduva, and they are traditional rituals which. Unfortunately, were um, were near nearly extinct because they didn't have the traditional artists and healers to continue the traditions. So, uh, I my teacher, who was a seventh generation healer, he was taught by his father, and his father was taught by his father before him. Uh, he didn't have a son, so he offered to teach me in the traditional way, which was a huge honor. And so I lived and studied with him for two years, and I've been working to apply what I learned in my own way since then, both by sharing the story and by working on things like Global Citizen Festival with another uh, amazing group of people to bring about some of the values. Like one of the things in Sri Lanka is, you know, music is such an incredible, and you're a dancer, so you'll appreciate this. My teacher danced around the world. So he was forbidden to dance by his mother because his mother wanted, it was during colonial times, his mother wanted him to be a doctor or a lawyer because that was the prevailing value during the British rule. And he, he was so defiant that he learned how to dance by watching his father teach other students and mimicking their shadow. And he became one of the best dancers in the country and he traveled all around the world. But dance was just one aspect of his artistry. He was also a master drummer and a master woodcarver, and an astrologer, and all of the different things that were necessary to bring people back into balance with their community. So I've been looking to apply those here by things like creating with a group of others, the Global Citizen Festival, and now other events where hopefully we can bring people back into a sense of being part of something bigger than themselves. Dance a beautiful way to connect with the world and share stories with the world. And when you, Michael, help spotlight these stories and amplify these voices from Sri Lanka, you help teach the world all the different perspectives we have, all the different ways we can live in the world. Yes. And that's what I'm hoping to do now by featuring people like you as well. So both people in Sri Lanka as well as what I would call global visionaries who are really working to bring about a new perspective or shed a new light in areas which perhaps have been historically overlooked. And unfortunately, to use to talk about Sri Lanka again, a lot of our cultural traditions, global cultural tra traditions, um, are, are being uh, forgotten in favor of some of the new technologies, which many of which are wonderful. But I, I'd love to find a balance between technological innovation and also the celebration of traditional wisdom because there's 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 such a power in both yeah i think innovation and traditional wisdom don't have to be separate you can easily combine them like YouTube. The technology is the way to bring the stories of ancient wisdom. Yes. Totally agree. Totally agree. Have, have you, I have a question. Have you been back to Eritrea or Ethiopia recently? Oh, yeah. yeah many, many times. times. Really? Well, no, not, not, not. Oh, oh, I went, I went to, to Ethiopia. Ethiopia. In, in 2015, 2015. And, and the last time I was in Eritrea was Wow. I'm looking forward to go. I, I built a well through uh, an organization I like called Charity Water, and my friend Galila uh, Bekele is Ethiopian. And she, I promised her that I would visit, so I'm very much, 
I've been through a good portion of East Africa. I've actually volunteered with, have you heard of the Greenbelt Movement with Wangari Mathai? So Wangari Mathai was the first African woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. She uh, was an incredible, incredible human being. She, uh, she basically took – Kenya had been hugely deforested and the environment was in great – had been degraded to a profound degree. And so she worked to empower – she also noticed that women um, had been marginalized from the, the, the ways in which they had been empowered perhaps traditionally – uh, in certain regards, not to say that, um, you know, there was yeah, not to go into the, the question of equality, but basically what she said was, let's take these two challenges and create a really dynamic solution. So she found a way to uh, compensate and actually fund women for replanting trees throughout the country. And not just planting them, but growing them. And so I traveled uh, with the Greenbelt Movement throughout Kenya to see these incredible communities where women had, had planted trees and, and rebuilt entire sections of the country. Not just by, because they planted trees, but then because the economics that, that came to them as a result of planting trees led to a whole diversity and trickle-down, right? Where I visited a, a family, for example, where... They had goats and they had cows and they had bees and they had they cultivated all these different vegetables with the money and their and all their daughters also went to school because of the work that they did with the Greenbelt movement. Whereas I went ten miles away and I also visited another community that was unfortunately totally deforested and, and there was a line of people, it was devastating, literally carving into a three foot uh hole of perched mud trying to take fill up a jerry can of water with dirty muddy water that was not even an inch deep so it was such a juxtaposition between um the communities where it had been basically desertified by 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 the the deforestation and then other communities where based on wangari's visionary leadership you know, whole communities had worked out for themselves and themselves and families of women based on reforesting the country. So it was totally profound. It, it changed. It, it, it changed my view uh, of what's possible in, in 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 so many ways. I think you would love her work. I'll, I'll send you something from Wangari. I have read enough. I appreciate learning about that. I those are the kind of stories that I like. Somebody sees a challenge and uses that challenge as an opportunity to create a new dynamic solution, and that ends up benefiting a whole community. Same thing with disability. Treat it as an opportunity to build something new, a dynamic new solution, rather than a permanent roadblock. Yes. What, where, where, do you see, where do you see yourself over the course of the next five years? Because you're clearly a leader and an innovator creating entirely new conversations um, around this issue. How, how do you see the next five years unfolding? Do you have a vision for that? My plan for the future is to continue teaching leaders decision makers, CEOs, executives, to treat disability as an opportunity. It's a force that drives innovation. And I want people to hire more people with disabilities. We need people with disabilities in the workforce. We need people with disabilities in classrooms, being part of the education system. So by shaping the story of disability, and framing it as an opportunity for new solutions, that'll help change the future. So that's one thing I'm working on. I'm also writing a book, which is a lot of fun. I love words. I love writing. So I'm writing a book about my experiences. Incredible. How far, is, how far along is the book? I just finished chapter six. 
All right. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you like grading? I love it. I love it. I'm actually also uh, I got approached by a publisher to, to work on a book, which I'm expect I'm uh, intending to write in 2018. And I also love uh, photography and and film and anything I can do that that I can use to express myself. And like you, I also love to dance. I remember you said you're very visual. Yes. There's also actually, you know, uh, when you talk about creating, I created a story in Haiti with a man I'd love to introduce you to sometime named Wilfred, who actually lost, uh, he lost his leg in the earthquake, um, in the big earthquake in 2010. And it reminded me, based on what you were saying, of people seeing opportunities and innovating. He was a welder. And he lost his leg, and I was with him. I was volunteering in a field hospital. I was with him when he got his prosthesis, his, his prosthetic leg. And, you know, for many people, they feel very uh, disheartened by the confronting the reality of, um, you know, the, the, the fact that they're the potentially, you know, be, be walking on an artificial limb for their life. But Wilfred was so joyful. He was so, so happy. He started dancing with his artificial limb and like break dancing. And he literally started kicking a soccer ball. And I kid you not, he start, he wound up starting a soccer team in Haiti of all amputees, uh, men, women, and children. And he turned his welding skills into, to your point about job creation, to, into working with a, a amazing organization called Project MediShare, where he makes prosthesis now for youth uh, who have lost a limb. And, and he even also came to the U.S. to train veterans from, the, from Iraq and Afghanistan, U.S. veterans, in how to play soccer using a prosthesis. So I love what you're talking about in terms of seeing both the opportunity and the obstacle, but also like there's tons of jobs that can be created for people who have a very unique uh, skill set and, and perspective. And, and I think Wilfred is, is, is a wonderful case in point. That's a beautiful story. So a lot of people have thought about this. If you lose a limb, why not make the next limb better? Why limit it to the average human ability? Why not take the time to create something that's spectacular? So there, there are people who build prosthetics that perform better than human legs. Yes. Do you know of any athletes? I, I know that there have been some athletes even that have competed towards the Olympic level. Are there any examples that you that you can say off the top of your head of of those who have um, used their their disability and, and actually crafted really dynamic solutions to take them further? There's a famous Olympian. I don't know his name who has a prosthetic. There's also a climber. He does uh, mountain climbing and rock climbing and ice climbing. His last name is Hare, H-E-H-I-R, and he's a professor at MIT who builds prosthetics, the bionic leg. Wow, amazing. I'll, uh, I'll look him up and then link, link to him in the, uh, in the show notes. Um, so I want to be respectful of your time. I just have a few final questions. This has been a great joy for me. I'm, I'm so grateful to you for taking the time, uh, Haben. It's been amazing. It took a lot of work and planning, but we finally have it down. <laughs> I know, I know. It's been you've been we've been tenacious. I'm grateful, and I and I I can't wait to um, next time you're in Los Angeles. If you're interested, I'd love to introduce you to the Wolf Connection. I think you would love that place. It's a very it's a very special place. Um, but but a few final questions. Um, how do you see here. What's that? 
Can I just pause? Yeah, you can pause. That Maxine and I have a special relationship, and I don't think she'd like me hanging out with other wolves. <laughs> well, that's a good point. Maybe out of respect for Maxine, we, sh- we probably won't bring the wolves in then. She'd appreciate that. Thanks, Michael. Of course. What what brings you deep joy? I love connecting with people. So I like doing activities that allows me to connect with people. That can be salsa dancing. Salsa is a beautiful way to connect. It can be tandem surfing. When I surf, I have a water guide. And the water guide and I have to communicate really well to be able to surf. Walking around with Maxine, that's a beautiful connection. So I love connecting with people. Amazing. And what was it like meeting, I have to ask you this, what was it like meeting President Obama? President Obama is amazing. Very warm, respectful. A lot of people are weirded out by differences. And when I explain I'm deafblind and I need them to type on a keyboard so I can read their words on a digital braille display, a lot of people freak out and say, oh, I can't do this. I'm not any good at typing. President Obama was very respectful. He gracefully switched from speaking to typing so that we can connect and communicate. And that's a great role model for the rest of the world. Wow, I love that. What advice do you have for, you're a role model for many in your own regard, um, but, but I, I would love to know, especially as it relates to, say, little girls, uh, because I know you're a model for, for, for many people. Um, but I was thinking, you know, what counsel, you, 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 you are still uh, a young woman, very accomplished, but a young woman in your own right. But what, to, to say, a young girl who is facing challenges or feels overwhelmed at times, what, what, what advice would you have for, for young girls today in terms of, facing the challenges before them, and and, and also the opportunities. I strongly encourage everyone to treat obstacles as an opportunity to create a new solution. Sometimes it's going to take you a while to figure out what the solution it will be. Maybe you need to take time to grieve, to feel anger, to allow yourself to feel that frustration, but afterwards, shift gears and move on to problem solving. Find a solution. You can do it. Just be thoughtful and creative. Mm. I love it. When you, I mean, you're a very positive person, but when, are there, like anyone, I imagine, there's got to be moments where you face, you, you get down. And I actually like the fact that you said, feel the emotion. Because I think so many people spiritually bypass and don't actually process it, so so that they can effectively move through it. But um, but also then and then use that as as fuel for the opportunity. How do you deal with times of challenge within yourself? I like being honest. Mm. So if I feel sad, I take time to feel sad. If I feel tired, I don't lie or, or hide the tired, the fact that I'm tired. I try to make sure I get time to get rest. So it's important to feel, it's important to be honest about the emotions. And then once you've given your time to feel that emotion, then you can shift gears and start problem solving, start seeking solutions. Mm. What is and you can you can choose one or both. What's the most fascinating book and or person you've discovered lately? 
Interesting. Um, well, this isn't a recent discovery. I've known this for a few years, but I really, really like Cheryl Strayed's writing. Mm. Beautiful writing style. And one of my favorite books is Tiny Beautiful Things. It's a collection of letters, honest stories that talk about many of the challenges in life, from grief, losing someone, to building relationships and struggling with relationships. And she has a fun, playful, and very thoughtful way of talking about all those issues. Wow, beautiful. I'll have to check it out. Thank you for the recommendation. Let me know when you think of it once you've read it. Okay, that sounds perfect. Um, okay, one of the things I like to ask, so I've, I've been in the process of interviewing people that I, um, that I want to learn from. And one of the questions I ask is, and people define their peak differently. To me, the, a peak is, is like a mountain, and I look at it like a journey. And it's not, about, it's not about standing on the top, the sort of peak, but more about the journey to get there. Um, but I think people are really interested in knowing kind of where people come from as well as, as their, their tools. So if you had one or two uh, tools or, or mindsets, if you will, that help you live at your peak or that you keep in mind in climbing the mountains all of us inevitably go through throughout our life, what would those one or two mindsets or tools be that help you live at your peak? Dancing metaphor. <laughs> okay, let's switch to dancing metaphor. What keeps you in the dance? So I prefer dancing metaphors because it's about being connected. Salsa mm. dancing, swing, other partner dances. It's about being connected. And in order to communicate in that connection, you also have to be aware of yourself and be honest about your needs and be open to listening and feeling with your whole presence and your whole body the, the communication the other person is sending the beat, musicality, rhythm so that's that's the metaphor that I use for life I'm always listening what am I feeling? what is the world communicating? And when I'm connected, that's when I feel the most joy. So it's not like me against the world. It's trying to be me with the world. Wow. That's one of the more beautiful things I've heard lately. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> So, uh, Haven, I want to I want to take just a moment before we wrap up to honor you. And I know that you don't like to be called an inspiration, so I will refrain from doing so. However, I want to acknowledge you and honor you for the dance that you are in the world, for the fact that you lead with listening, which is unfortunately not the leadership trait that's most often exemplified, but I feel is exemplified in you, in your way of being, in my experience of you from the moment I met you through this conversation. You are always looking for a possibility to connect more deeply with another person, meeting them where they're at. And I honor you for your deep wisdom and sensitivity to that possibility, which is connection. And I thank you so much for taking the time to dance with me today. You're very welcome. It was a fun dance. You're a great dancer. 
<laughs> Thank you. And when you come to Los Angeles, if you want to go for a surf, you'll be better than me. But uh, I, I, I'd love to go for a surf sometime. Maxine won't get jealous about the surf, I don't think. It'll be fun. Yeah, surfing is another way to connect with people and also with the ocean. You're also talented in terms of highlighting stories, bringing out the great stories in people, and that's really important work. So thank you for amplifying stories around the world. It's a pleasure. I look forward to our next conversation, Haben, and I'm, I'm very grateful for your time and just who you are in the world. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Michael. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. And there you have it. Absolutely love my conversation with Haben Gurma. What an inspirational human. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And, uh, you know, I, my vision with this show is to bring on not just sort of the best in health and wellness, but I think the best in just people who stand for humanity and, and our collective possibility. And so I'm going to be bringing more of those folks on the show. Uh, I've got some really exciting guests coming up. If you're enjoying the show, please go ahead and leave a rating or review on uh, iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts. It really helps us move up the algorithm and grow the community. It means the world to me. Uh, any feedback can always be sent to me at Michael Trainer. I love hearing um, any feedback you have on the show. And I'm so grateful for your listening, for your sharing, for your contributions. It means the world to me. And with that, go out there and live your inspired life.